So welcome everyone and welcome to Cryptic, the Carlton Research Practice of Teaching Collaborative. My name is Federica Goffi. I'm the co-chair of the PhD program at the Azraeli School of Architecture and Urbanism, Carlton University. Today, we have the pleasure to interview Dr. Menna Aga, who is an assistant professor at our school. This interview will be conducted by a group of PhD and MS students in architecture in our program. So welcome, Menna. Thank you very much, Federica, for, for the kind invitation. And thanks to everybody for all the work you've put um, in your questions and in reading my work. It's our pleasure. And uh, Warren Borg, one of our PhD students, will go first with questions. Hi, hi Mena. Hi, um, So my name is Warren Borg. Uh, I'm actually a licensed architect in, uh, in Canada. Um, I'm registered with the Ontario Association and the Northwest Territories Association. Uh, I've practiced for 11 years in, in Nunavut, and I have joined the PhD program here uh, from last year, and I've been a PhD student since then. That being said, um, considering the, the low percentage of women architects in the industry, do you think women's interests and voices are represented well in the architectural field, how could this be improved? Well, let's answer the first part of your question. That's a resounding no. Uh, <laughs> but this is an architecture issue that we all know and, and recognize very well. The fact that women are pushed, not just in architecture, in so many fields. The, the professional world is highly patriarchal and misogynistic. And uh, it's just a, a step a few um, a few meters and ask our colleagues in engineering as well. So it's it's architecture is not really um, uh, sheltered from has not really done the work to shelter itself from larger patriarchal systems and, and misogyny. <clears throat> but there is also a bigger issue within architecture, um, which is <clears throat> how it defines itself and how it's constituted. So um, there is a lot of um, work around bringing women into architecture, adding women into spaces of uh, architecture spaces. But in adding us, we are requested to practice what architecture defines as architecture. But if you think in our in women's practice every day, we make place. It's just that architecture canon does not recognize it. So the lack of women in architecture has to do with the fact that architecture has invisibilized women who already have, are making space, who already are producing specialities, who already are making societies. Um, and uh, because they have not been baptized by the professional degree, but also because the access to this professional degree is very elitist. We all know what it takes to be in architecture. We, know, we all know how much it is to be in architecture. We all know how much a, a, a model costs, right? And you find uh, that these are all um, mechanisms of, of foreclosure uh, for women, especially women of color, coming into this field. Um, so yes, it is an, an architecture issue, of course, uh, an issue of accessibility, but also an issue of the way in which architecture sees itself. We, we from this field, need to stand, stand um, uh, in a position uh, from which we call and accept and recognize and respect and value all the spatial products of women around us, especially as spatial products of women have made all of us, right? We are, we are all here because, because 
a, a woman made a space for us or, or womanhood at least made a space for us. Uh, hello, Dr. Menna. My name is Riam Awad. I'm a second year PhD student at the school. Uh, first, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, the first part of the questions will focus on your doctoral experience and experience as an advisor. And I will start off with asking about how did your experience as a PhD student at the University of Antwerp in Belgium inform the way you define your role and involvement as a supervisor and here in your academic career, but also if you can talk uh, a bit about what is the role of a PhD supervisor. Well, uh, my PhD experience was um, um, a really pivotal moment in in my personal definition. It's it was such a it was such a big turmoil when it comes to my immigration status and my uh, um, family and my health. So I had so many things going on and issues that I'm fighting for. Um, and at some moment with all that, I found myself in a, in a point of freedom at, to ask myself, what do I want to do? So what happens with a PhD? Let me let, let me kind of step back a bit uh, uh, into this. I started I started my PhD at Antwerp in 2014, 15, I guess. Yes. And I went there pregnant. My husband could not get a visa to join me. So I was just in this space um, in which my practice, my existence in a building walking around and taking an elevator and finding somebody who I, then I found out to be a high, high rank administrator telling me that this is only for, this, they said it's only for faculty. They did not think I'm a student, they thought I'm staff. They thought I'm, I'm the person who's supposed to be cleaning this area, not, not just that as a PhD student in where I am was, was a job. So I, I had an office, I had a, a desk. Uh, so, so the fact that I see how racialized I am in the built environment as a woman, pregnant, made it so paramount for me to, to define what I want and decide that there is no BS here. I, I have these four years to, 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 to do a project. I probably will not have that much in my life again to, to, to do such intellectual labor on one single project. And here I am, see all these things happening over my body. What do I want to do? And I went to um, went there and, and I started started with a project around uh, Nubian displacement. Uh, however, my um, what I my questions changed exponentially. I just I just changed my lens instead of trying to write what the grant office wants me to write what are the questions that bring me a grant at that very precarious moment in my life I decided to ask the questions that matter to me I decided to ask questions about my own displacement my own womanhood my own grandmother and allow for myself to speak in my authentic voice allow for my grandmother's voice to ring in my head instead of writing what I think a, a Western Eurocentric audience wants me to write and, and wants me to discuss and want, what kind of knowledge I, they want me to offer them about, you know, the sensationalized new black people in the south of Egypt, the, this kind of minority, you know, this, the whole, the whole notions, what, what am I supposed to present versus what I really want to ask. And I ended up asking questions about 
on how to be displaced from where you have never been. I tried to ask questions about what does it mean to be an architect as a as an Nubian woman? What would my grandmother's voice uh, recognize as architecture practice? And from that, I came out of this PhD writing my truth. I, I have to say, it, I'm, I at this moment, with all the precarity, I do celebrate um, taking on this PhD in a in a heavily white space. I was the only person who was not white in that school. The city of Antwerp is 40% immigrants. However, the university is almost 100% white. It's just to see how, how much foreclosure and how much redlining is there over black and brown um, futures and possibilities and, and, and social mobility, even in what is what are called diverse cities. And you see, you see the university and I see myself there. And in that point of confrontation, everything was so real, everything was so visceral. Uh, and I, I ended up uh, asking my own questions. And I was very lucky to have um, two supervisors, a feminist in El Stavos and a a true decolonial thinker in Johan de Walsh, who uh, ended up, who I knew from Egypt because he used to work with uh, Nubian um, um, villages, he used to bring students and work in Nubian villages and, and, and Aswan. Um, and I was lucky enough to be to be able to have my voice recognized, even when it was uh, really, um, really messy. And to move on to the to the next part of the question, let me tell you what my supervisor, Johan de Walsh, wrote in my recommendation letters everywhere I applied. He wrote that I am messy, okay? So this is him telling people to hire me, she, that I am messy and it looks chaotic. So my work and my process looks chaotic, but then the outcome is worth it. And I think this was the, biggest um, favor he did me or they did me during my, my studies is to let me be chaotic, to let, the, to let me be messy, to let me ask questions that I don't know answers to, to let me ask questions that I will never know answers to and I will never write them and they will never count as pages in my PhD and they will, but they are important in me defining what I want to do and who I want to be uh, and, and what kind of scholarship do I want to offer this world. Um, as I was st stood at a point, even though I was okay with it before, I stood at a point rejecting uh, any rejected um, the role of uh, the data collector, the data presenter that African and you know Middle Eastern um, uh, scholars are should be offering Western uh, academia. We should come there with a case study, and then we should offer them this case study so that they can then theorize. We're not allowed to theorize. Uh, and then I just stood there and I had um, and I and I gave myself the audacity to theorize and to say, well, this is how things are. This is how how I understand them. I have truly situated myself in that place. And I I, um, I know it was so foreign to my supervisors, but it's it was um, it was such a so they, they gave me that space to to do something that they were not they did not know, but they trusted me doing that so i think the first the first thing i i, I would say um a phd supervisor which is a position of care 
it's 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 a care, it's an intellectual care giving position that's that is lineage it's it's a, a kind of lineage it's a kind of kinship that is being created uh, but the first thing is is to allow you to mess uh, things up and if it's not clear to them to have a trust um in us and uh, yeah and I, I i am i'm very very lucky to have had that in my experience to just be allowed to to mess around and, and write things that are weird and regret them and go back and write something else and do field work and then and get funded for the field work and then erase all the field work that i got funded for it's like it's it's it was um somebody should have got a, gotten in trouble from the institution but luckily nothing happened um, yeah so this this would be a summary of, of my experience uh, of my of my, what i remember from my experience i would say being a phd student and in your position especially another thing that is um that was i felt good about is trusting myself i, I did not think i'm good enough to write or publish early on and i never had the audacity to to send a manuscript to somebody but then um something a, a, a favor i did myself was to start sending out manuscript and get re not rejected I get people telling me, well, this is something very important, but then we need to tweak it. And I started, <clears throat> I used to, to send in and I get major reviews. And then I would be working a year on, on these reviews. And I would be thinking every time I send it, they're going to send me a rejection back. And then I, eventually I would be, I would get published. <clears throat> and um, uh, I think allowing myself to, to engage in that field, just to, to put my, feet in the field and write and send it to the community. And then year, a year later, I find somebody sending me an email and telling me, well, we are teaching this, this, this uh, paper in our class or so on. And, I, and I, I feel that kind of value. And I'm, what I'm trying to say is that we have so much value, especially by the second year, you know, the second year of, our, of PhD when we don't know what we're doing. It's like, you don't know what is happening. Am I good? At, uh, where, where am I now? The first year I'm starting a PhD. I know what I want to do. The second year, it's, uh, did I do enough? A third year is freak out here because it's the fourth year is uh, writing year. And we all write in the writing year. We are we all are, let's say in another way, we are all having anxieties about writing in the writing year. But in the, uh, especially for me with second and third year, when I started the end of second year, uh, first, uh, Third year, beginning of third year, when I started to give myself or had the audacity to start putting out there um, what I have, um, and I think it's also different in Europe a bit because we, the age of PhD students are, are much younger. My colleagues were, I was in my late twenties, and that was very late for them. My colleagues were graduating with PhDs at twenty six, uh, so it's uh, it was a bit of. Um, of something also I, I've, I've allowed myself it's to, to cross that fear and publish and, and have my voice heard, be heard and, and trust that um, it's it's what I have to say now and maybe I change my mind later but that's okay too. Thank you that was a powerful and inspiring answer thanks. Um, so, some of your uh, <laughs> some of what you've talked about might answer some of this um, the next question how does or did your PhD in architecture from the University of Antwerp, your Nubian culture, heritage and identity influence your research methods? Can you define your views on the term of culture, uh, heritage and identity? 
Well, let's just, before we define terms. Oh, I have not answered that question before. This is the entire PhD. And how long, I'm, I'm going to try to not eat up all, all the time on this, in this particular question. Let's try to summarize it. Um, my Nubian culture, heritage and identity did not, um, how, do, how do I say? So I, the an inspiration for me was not just by the, uh, the culture or the identity or the performance. It's um, an intentional, reflexive, auto-ethnographic project of epistemic repositioning. I moved myself from where I was as an architect who was trained, who with my hand being, with my, with, with an, being an architecture student whose hand got twisted into drawing in a certain system, into understanding world through a certain lens, into, into allowing myself to go back and, and let the echoes of my own um, of my own lineage kind of ring and define where I want to go with this. So I basically decided I will ask myself what things mean. And then what do they mean in Nubin? To go to the, your next second question. So in Nubin is my indigenous language. Nubin is the my dialect. I'm a Fadidja Nubian. Uh, so my dialect is Nubin, and our neighbors in, in the front, in the village next to us, uh, are Matoka Nubian, and they speak Andandi. So my in my uh, in my language, um, I start, started to look for meanings, and it helped that I have a lot of friends who are experts on ancient Nubian. So even if I can't find it in modern Nubian languages, I find it in, in ancient Nubian. Why? Because first we start we all say these words as if it's universal, but these words are in English. English sometimes does not have the ontological resources we need to, to represent the things that we feel, perform, and, and, and practice. So I every time I take up a word, I know that I'm taking this in English, and sometimes English will fall short, and I know that. And I, it's okay if English falls short, because I can also illustrate, I can draw, and I can add it in Arabic, and I can try to make sense of it in, in a certain way. But it's when I start started thinking about notions of culture, heritage, and identity, um, I started at that point of language. Where are we from? Where am I from this, this term in my language? And what is it in Arabic? What is it in English? <clears throat> and what, why does the, the meaning jump in different spaces? What is affected by what? Um, and also how notions like identity, gender, which, which was uh, relevant to me, notions like gender, identity, race, culture, and heritage are um, recalibrated and um, defined and in, in packaged in our collective, collective conscious and as academics. Because they also come from certain industries and certain politics, certain mega, mega, uh, certain um, meta-narratives that uh, for example, when we speak about culture, you can speak about culture without knowing that you are influenced by the language which is imposed to you by UNESCO, for example. You study that and you have had that reading in your second year of, uh, um, of your studies and you have had it in your master's and you had to read that paper and it defined culture and then that definition of culture has really told you what culture is. Um, and this is why, it, to me, running out of language was a, was a good refuge and a critical distance to see the differences and to see what I want to take out of a certain meaning. So for example, let's take, take the word identity. The 
Nubian identity as defined within um, Western epistemic realms. It either comes from highly racist narratives by Egyptologists, and they were all white supremacists. Egyptologists were very, the, the worst. And then um, um, they get diluted and diluted and diluted, and then they end up to be defined according to definitions of identity stated by larger um, governance institutions. So for, in our case, it is the UNESCO. So UNESCO, the UNESCO has a lot of hand in, uh, in what is happening now in Nubian culture or archaeology, architecture. It's, it has defined a lot of that, and we are not really happy with them. They're not, they have wronged us a, big, a great deal, as they have done to all indigenous and poor people around the world. <clears throat> it's, um, but that's another topic. But then when I speak about this notion of identity, uh, the question would be what it means to be Nubian for me. I know, for example, that in, in for Nubians, I have friends who are Nubians by lineage and some friends who are Nubians by uh, love. So it's uh, it, I'm trying to translate from, from Nubian and Arabic. So you would find somebody who has been living in on Nubian land all their lives, and you would ask them, are you Nubian? They would tell you, I'm Nubian by love, which means they have claimed that kind of identity despite, <clears throat> despite lineage. If you ask the institution, they would not fall under that because identity is, something, is not something that you claim. Identity is something that, that gets um, branded on you so that you can be counted, so that you can be controlled and surveilled in, in, in institutional terms. So to me, I get to stand in that position and know that what identity is that claim I make. Um, and I always like to um, say this very bad translation of Mahmoud Darwish, uh, uh, Mahmoud Darwish's uh, uh, poem about the identity being the mirror we break every time we write our reflection in it. Mahmoud Darwish is a Palestinian, is the great Palestinian poet, of course. So, <clears throat> so to me, it's going between languages, because you see now I'm jumping between Arabic, Arabic and, being, and then English, <clears throat> gives me a bit of shelter from having to abide by it. And also gives me a critical distance to understand and put in words how the other definitions have wronged me, how that definition of identity have been complicit in my displacement, in my diaspora, and my exile. So I'll, 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 I told you, this is going to be a very long answer for a question. So I'll just stop it here. Hello, Dr. Mena. Uh, Hi, Ahmed. I'm, I'm, I'm Ahmed. I'm first year PhD student. And I'm, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really very happy to work with you, to have the opportunity to work with you and to engage with your influential and inspiring work. So thank you so much. And um, I wanted to ask, like, uh, if you can, can you talk about your role and work in the newly established design and spatial justice area at the Adriali School of Architecture and Urbanism? and how it relates to and hopes to inform your research and pedagogy. Well, I am so excited. I just started um, a couple of months ago and I have been having the, getting all the freedom to do so many things. Thank you. Thank you, Federica, for, for, not, uh, for, for giving me all this freedom. I thought somebody's going to read my syllabi and send me a strongly worded email at some point. But I am, uh, I am very, um, um, first of all, happy to be amongst a, a, a research uh, context that already has a lot of colleagues with focus 
on anti-racist, decolonial, um, and feminist um, uh, work in architecture. So I don't come into a desert. I, I, I feel like I have kin here before, before starting to work. And I also <clears throat> have appreciate, a, a great appreciation for the fact that this is a title of my uh, job. It was to me a promise I made myself that this is the work I'm going to do from now on after my PhD, whether um, I get paid for it or not, whether it's going to be uh, this kind of position or a different kind of position. So I feel so privileged to have this be my, I would not say area of expertise, but my, uh, my assigned duty to work on issues of justice in the built environment and design in the built environment. I think with Carlton, I come into also a huge movement with the EDI um, work that has been happening on faculty level, on institutional, institutional level, but also the amazing activism by DWG that happened last year, the work that students do. Students have been changing it. We forget how much history was made by student changing it. Uh, so I was also very happy to know that this is the context that I'm, I'm going to be working with. Uh, now I have been involved in teaching the first year architecture um, introduction to architecture course, which in which we worked together. Ahmed, uh, thank you very much for your, uh, your work uh, with this one. Um, in which we I worked with um, I co-taught taught it with uh, Professor Jake Shakasim, uh, an Indigenous Canadian architect, who uh, together we decided that we're going to shake this grounds and start introduce architecture not the one that exists introduce architecture as we want it to be we will introduce architecture we don't care if it exists or not we're just going to introduce architecture that we would like our students to produce eventually one that is land-based one that is um based in justice one that recognizes all these uh, structural issues and that also is critical of the existing uh, systems of canon and the status quo in architecture in architecture education uh, and then this semester, um, I just finalized my uh, option studio uh, titled Johasnil, and it was about resistance in the built environment and how understanding legal structures and finding ways to go around them can allow us to carve a space against um, larger systems. How can we do smaller acts and that have a bigger impact and, and with that we claim land and we claim space. And we are now working on an elective titled architecture um, of community care and we are partnering with a center town community center uh, to build uh, to add to to design and hopefully eventually build having it be a design built module uh, and, and to implement um, a community pantry downtown ottawa which is which is uh, a space where it's it, we would be blind if we don't see the injustice every time we step in there the the class friction the the dynamics between different uh, groups and uh, the amount of inequality um, is pretty blatant. Uh, and, and it being, as, as our community partner describes it, um, downtown, I mean, it being a, a food desert. So we are hoping to implement this project by May. Um, and I'm, I'm very excited to see, to, to take this to, to the finish line. Uh, but I'm also very excited that I have all these opportunities to, to practice uh, 
um, theoretically and in design and in studio and on paper, but also in person and uh, on, on the ground and hands on um, architecture and, and why in praxis uh, find a way to kind of re recalibrate architecture as uh, I was saying at the beginning. Thank you so much. And I'd like to thank you so much again for having the amazing opportunity to work with you. It was an amazing experience. Oh, you're so nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, See, nice so Egyptians talk to each other. <laughs> Very polite people. <laughs> uh, the second part of the interview is going to delve into uh, research methodology. And uh, I'd like to start to ask, like, um, as a third generation displaced Faridja Nubian, can you describe how such a legacy has influenced your work and shaped your interest in decolonial theory and methods? Yes. Here's, here are the three words that, uh, that I will preface this with. Reflexivity, positionality, and autoethnography. So these are the three exercises that define my methodological framework. And all of them can be done in so many ways that are good or bad and morally horrible, but they were the mechanisms that I thought were the most, that had the most potency to, to tackle the questions I, I wanted to tackle. So, so the, the, the thing is that when we start our PhD, we get all these courses on research methodologies and you just learn all these techniques and different kinds of case studies and the different and, and then somebody from uh, from social studies comes and teaches you and flexes with all these fancy words about grounded theory and then you have no idea what grounded theory is i tried to work with grounded theory and then i rejected as writing that it's grounded theory because it's it's uh, they they are very protective and they are very territorial over grounded theory in the social studies were at least where I come from. They're very classical social studies people, very classic, classical uh, Flemish social studies um, professors. Uh, and, and, and then the whole idea for, for me with grounded theory was the fact that I did not want a hypothesis. I did not want to answer my questions before I asked them. Uh, even though sometimes I like that. Sometimes I know something, like sometimes I, I, I know this is that. This, this is, I know this, this is it. I just need to put it into words. And that requires a different methodology. But at that point, I had all these big questions that are existential, literally existential questions about me and my grandmother in our house and the way we exist and how did it happen? And, and what, does, what does it mean for me to build and to be an architect? If I want to be Nubian and an architect at the same time. And then I ended up with these three techniques continuous reflexivity it's just it's just a, a lot of emotional work reflexivity is emotional work because you 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 come into a conclusion and you reread yourself and read some i think the, the the hardest thing for me is to read myself to reread myself and come back to it and, and and reflect on it and and reflect my position at the moment i wrote it and the, my, my position and the, the moment after and the, my, my position a week after and, and you just keep this continuous steering as if you're cooking and you, 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 if you leave the sauces going, it's going to go bad. So you have always to have the steer over all the ideas at all the times. Positionality, which is where I be very clear with myself, where I am, where I stand, not just as a Nubian woman, but as a Nubian woman who got, got 
education in Cairo. That affects me. I, I need to make a decision from that. A Nubian woman who ended up overseas, and a Nubian woman who had all these resources, there, there is a class dynamic here. I am in this position because I had resources. My cousins who did not have the same resources married at 19 and stayed in their village. This is, this is what, what we were all supposed to be. But you, you get certain privileges and it gives you a space to think. And then, and then these have to be taken into consideration. But also it, it has to come with the question of the insider-outsider research, because I think it's one of the most naive questions in research. There are also very clear things. So are you Nubian or are you not Nubian? This is an identity you, you have worked for. You work for your identity and you know, you know that you've been always Nubian. So yes, I am Nubian, but are you an outsider of a community or an outsider, insider or an outsider? Is it an ethic or emic research? Uh, methodology, you come back to that and say, okay, what's inside and out? What's, what is outside? There are always circles of inside and there, is, there are always um, inside of the inside of the inside. I am Nubian, but I'm not Matok, I'm not Fadidja Nubian, but I don't live in the, the displacement village. I'm Fadidja Nubian, but I'm Egyptian Fadidja, not Sudanese Fadidja. I am, you know, you just, I, uh, uh, yes, but I am from, from, part of me is from Kostol and part is from Ibrim and Ibrim was a rich. Uh, village because it was an economically um, this is my father's village it was uh, economically flourishing and that creates generational wealth and so far you see people from Ibrahim being doctors and engineers while everybody else don't, does not get that uh, so to me it's, it's this idea of always finding my position and being very clear and being very honest um, about it and not trying to claim what I should not be claiming, but also be very persistent at claiming what I want to be claiming. Because Nubian identity is also contested. Are you Nubian or are you Egyptian? Are you? It's, it becomes part of a, 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 a muddled out identity struggle that comes from a nation state and it comes from the fact that Nubia was this land and then when the British came and divided it, it became two lands and then it became part of two different nation states and then I hold the passport from one of these nation states. So it, it so to me having claiming what I what I wh wh where I stand. So that kind of stance, the positionality also comes with it the epistemic positionality. And the third one is autoethnography and this was um, this was also a lot of work. First of all, the audacity to tell your own story and to be your own subject without producing yourself as a subject. Uh, and autoethnography was for me at the beginning, a very uh, um, a way to escape producing my people as a subject. I felt that this is the field work that I threw away. The feeling having to go and create semi-structures interviews that abide to the system of blah, blah, blah in social sciences and go ask my cousins and aunties these questions, I felt ridiculous. First of all, it's weird that I speak to them in an institutional tone and be an institutional agent because I am their girl. I'm not an institutionalist girl. I am. I am there. I, I belong to them. Uh, so I should not speak to them in institutional language. This to start with. The um, the other issue is that I just felt dirty about it. I felt like I am producing my people as a subject to serve an institution. So it was just, this was one of these things that, uh, th th that's the field work that got thrown away. This was one of these feelings that you, uh, 
I can't really put it in words. I could only put it in words after. Like I could put it in words and, you know, cite Spivak and speak about the subaltern and subject production, but way after. But I felt bad about addressing my feeling and my supervisors trusted the messiness in my feelings that I have mentioned to them. It's like, eh. So I can only tell my story. So I started putting myself there. So if I'm going to produce somebody as a subject, it's going to be me. But then it, it turns out that I don't really know myself. And then, then I, I had to, to kind of put myself into words. You, usually when you do uh, autoethnographic work, so the positionality work, who am I? How am I here? Why is this important to me? Why, why is it important to me to say that I'm Nubian? Why is this? And I then end up saying, because this is these are resources. This is wealth. This is uh, a wealth of meaning that I will not give up. And projects of colonization and epistemicide are taking that away from me and I will not let it go and I will be the agent for, for it to, to live in the future. Uh, so, so methodologically, the autoethnographic process became, it's, it was all, always existential. It was always an existential question issue. And when I ask people questions, I, I go first ask what, what happens, you know, so I am sure there's a question coming about this, but uh, I always remember the going and asking for stories. So I'm, I'm asking for stories so that I can repeat, not quote people, but repeat stories. And I would record it through my phone. No, no recorders. Everything is done through your phone. Anything else is a threat. So this is something phones, sorry, uh, recorders, big cameras, all, the, all these things are felt as weapons to people who have been victimized by researchers, especially on the African continent, you have to always take that into consideration when you're working. I would say that, you know, they start telling the story about a building, they give no care about the core of my question, doesn't matter, they are going to tell the story, the story, the story does not work for me, I work for the story. And then I will leave the recorder, and then they, somebody would ask me to go make tea. So uh, as the researcher is not even important at that situation. The story would exist despite the researcher, despite my question, despite my intentions. And, and then it kind of, these kinds of uh, interaction, interactions and, and, and frictions with, the, with my field, with myself, and the, told me where I am there. So, and also told me that I am not a researcher. I'm not, I'm, I am a researcher, but I'm not an agent of a Western academic institution anymore. Yes, I am registered somewhere and I probably will get a PhD and it will help me, help me get a job, probably. It did, but that's good, which we all do. But I, my work is not going to be an agent to this institution. And um, yeah, this, it was myth methodic. Um, I know I digressed, but I will stop here and let's go to another question. Thank you. You already like talked about uh, the methods, uh, but my following question will maybe give a chance to elaborate a bit more on specific uh, challenges, maybe. So in multiple uh, publications, you uh, mentioned employing autoethnographic and reflexivity method. Uh, and in your publication, Liminal Publics, Marginal Resistance, you state that you position yourself as a scholar, a Nubian, a woman, and a feminist. And later on you write, and I quote, I incorporate my body into the narrative. I regard my clothing as my second skin and the space around me as a third skin. 
by making my body, I use my subjectivity as a source of data. But more importantly, I prevent my role as a researcher from ascribing power to the institutional scholar to dominate the space or dictate the narrative, end of quote. Um, so my question is like, if you can elaborate more on how your personal experience and self-reflection as a third generation displaced Nubian woman enhanced your research. And did you feel at moments that you needed to uh, like step back or distance yourself to look from a different perspective? And can you also speak to the challenges of being personally attached to your subject of research? And the last part of this long question is, if you have any advice on how to approach autoethnographic uh, methodology. This is a very good chance to speak. First of all, it's so awkward to hear my text read back to me. Thank you so much for, uh, for reading it, but it's, uh, I just have to say it's, it feels something. Uh, uh, but let's, it's a very good chance to speak about bias in research because we are told that as researchers, we should not be biased, which is BS, to be, to be honest. All researchers are biased to a technique and epistemic grounds. And they are, the, the, the point here is with positionality, you mark your bias and you be very explicit with them. And I marked my bias and I was explicit in my bias to a Nubian epistemic grounds. I, I was explicit in that. I am biased, yes, because every other researcher is too, even though they claim and they try to muddy the language to look like it's neutral. There is no neutrality. If there is political interest, there is a bias. Um, so I think, I, I think, I, okay, the trying to get myself out of it is what I did in the beginning. I'm trying to distance myself and look at it objectively and let the record, you know, mentioned that I, I air quote here objectively and that's that's when every product came out was so insincere and and represented a reality that it was not our reality especially as I had to put it in academic language the things that had to the things that sounded simple and I had to put them in you know obscure the language as we all do in, in academia you just have to put it in big pompous words. Um, and this is what I promised myself I will not do. Uh, remove myself out of things. Actually, the, the, it's the opposite. I put myself in, in, in things and problematize it and, and involve even more, uh, especially in this position in which I, I can't really remove myself from, from that. Um, anyways, I, I will not be removed. Even if I pretend that I am not, I will, I will be in a context where I always be put in that box when that box is created. The only way I can, I can fight the box is to claim myself and push it and break its bounds and be too big for the box to, to, to hold me. Uh, so my subjectivities are my subjectivities because every other researcher's subjectivities are including a claimed identity of positivist neutral, uh, neutral uh, process or, or research, which is not really, not never gonna be the case. If, if at, even if a, a researcher is removed, completely removed from a field and feels nothing towards the field and is just doing this for their tenure, tenure um, dossier, they still have political interest and they will follow the political interest of the institution that's going to meet their, their interest eventually. If that's a racist institution, they're gonna be racist in their uh, text towards this piece. Uh, just trying to be a bit uh, extreme in my example, but I'm just trying to, to, to speak to that point of, of 
research bias exists, always exists. And for us displaced people, we need to claim it and claim it hard and do the intellectual labor and the political work of that claim in text too, in, in, in writing. Thank you. Um, so to like continue with questions about method uh, in your work, we know so you use photography, mapping and drawings to represent and communicate the different Nubian spaces and spatial practices in Tajir, which is in Arabic, the place of displacement. And uh, can you talk a bit more of how you use these methods as a research method? Yeah, we are, um, this comes to the research, research methodology and methodologies in architecture in general. We are not doing the best job in creating, in creating research methods that are ours. We, are keep, we keep borrowing from social studies, maybe from engineering if we're doing something you know, technical, uh, maybe from geography if we're doing certain cartographic maps. And we don't, we, we are, have been trying, and, and my previous supervisor, Johan de Valsch, had this big project about this research by design, um, and how do we measure research by design, and how do we get a PhD by design, and how do we um, grade, and how do we evaluate the PhD by design, and, and so on. So the fact that we, we do, um, in, in our research, we, we are having a hard time, and, and I, I am guilty of this too, the of, uh, we are having a hard time to, to create and carve methods that are ours. But we still end up leaning towards visual tools, because this is our training. We, we are visual professionals. I first start taking photos of things, because then I can analyze them the way I learned how to look and analyze things or my, you know, through visual spatial literacy. Then I go and take photos of buildings, but then I cannot take photographs of people, because I should be sitting with those people at that minute. I should not be taking photos of them. I should not be pre producing them as a subject of my photograph. I should be sitting with them. And my husband should not be taking a photo of us sitting together either because he should be sitting with us as well. So it's, it's an, unless I have an, an alien person who they are going to invite for tea, by the way, also, if, if it doesn't matter, it, it's the fact that your existence there should be a part of the situation, not an observer of the situation. It's, not, it's violent to give yourself that privilege of being an non-engaging observer. So I ended up having photographs and then collaging uh, in uh, human situations. So how the um, grandmothers sit in front of their house in the street every day. Um, I would collage that because I do not dare to go take a photo of my grandmother. I would be sitting next to her at that moment and she would be uh, holding my hair and blaming me for not taking good care of my hair because this is what I'm supposed to do. I was supposed to be sitting next to her being scolded for something. What is it? I don't know, but this is my role. I should not be producing her as my subject and observing her as if she's, you know, a, a, a lab rat because this is how she's going to perceive it. And she's going to let me because if, if I do that, you know why? Because she wants me to get a PhD and, and do good in my life. She will let me do something that's not comfortable to her. Yeah, of course, take photos. I'm, I'm sure this is, you're going to use us to go get your degree or so on. But I elected not to do that. So it, it became then at give and take a struggle with visual tools 
and what to get to be seen and what not to be seen, what to be respected and what to be captured and what gets to escape capture. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's also escaping capture as this big black um, epistemic vehicle practice, the, the things that you, as a, a good source of that would be Catherine McKittrick before I go into uh, an, an analysis. Uh, I would say, yeah, McKittrick's work and, 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 um, and texts on escaping capture are were, were an, an inspiration for, for me explaining that to myself, like what, what, what should be there and what I should protect from being captured by a camera. And I also kind of engaged with, so I have an issue, I have an issue with French leftist philosophers, okay? I have a big issue with them. My big issue with them is that there is a very stink freaking long tradition of black philosophers and thinkers in, in Europe, Francophone, that have created so much knowledge, but they never really cite them. This being so leftist and so on the politics that you like, but still white knowledge remains white. But I was, and I say that as a preface to the next thing I'm talking about, which is schizocartography. So this is a technique I really liked that was uh, spoke to something in me that was produced by, um, was uh, developed by a researcher in the UK uh, at Leeds. Her name is Tina Richardson. And in schizocartography, she basically allows you to speak to the different, it, it's just it's just this process of speaking to the different voices in your head and knowing that when you when you map something, you map what you are conditioned to map. What are the other things that you are not supposed to were not supposed to be seen, but you see them that are important to you? So, you know, and how 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 do we allow these different voices to to how do we allow to the other uh, the other voice, the voice of the other that is in you, to to kind of supersede the, the institutional voice and what kind of map comes out of it? And she bases her work on uh, Deleuze, of course. So I had always this struggle with her. So I just start to take the technique of it and, but still remind myself that white knowledge has remained knowledge, uh, white and I should not forget the fact that I decided my lineage and I decided that my lineage is, is, is not going to be racialized, but it's going to be in alliance. And even those in political alliance in, in rhetoric have not practiced it, have not really built on black and brown people around uh, within the same context, let's be, let's be the same language. So when I started building on this mapping technique that in its roots did not take that into consideration, I had to take it and, and, and take that into consideration and start rephrasing what kind of, what kind of black politics would it be there if I start thinking about um, schizocartography? So I, I worked. This this was also what what gets to be seen. Well, if if I if I practice this, if I practice this the way I want it to be, what works for my political interest? And in my political interest is to have my knowledge always be in that alliance. I should not be citing, which I did shamefully. I should not be citing people who are not working for my, my political interest as well. Thank you. Okay, uh, next question. Um, in liminal pu uh, publics, marginal resistance, 
You discuss how the researcher has an impact on what, what is observed. You mentioned how women who were sitting on the mastaba were, were, went inside when an outsider man walked between the houses. Although this is not, this is not related to the use of the mastaba, it could indicate a custom that may not have been observed in other contexts. Can you talk about the challenging role of the researcher when, when conducting cross-cultural and cross-gendered research? What would be the values and challenges? This, thank you so much for this question. This is, this I think is um, 101 research ethics. To know the powers you bring with you to the site, your body, your clothing, your camera, your recorder, your, the car that brought you, your, your, the fact of your existence in that space brings a certain power with it and brings a certain bag, baggage with it to the community with which you want to engage. And there is no way that you're gonna get dressed down or up or nothing, you, you bring it with, you. That's, that's it. Even with me, I, where I am, a semi-Nubian -speak, speaker. So my, according to my grandmother, my Nubian is bad, but according to my grandmother, everything I do is bad. So, but I am their, their girl. I go wearing my national dress. I don't go to my village in uh, civilian clothes. I wear my gargar. I, I am a Nubian woman in that space, but I cannot shed away the layers of educated speech. I do a lots of lots of air quotes in a, in an audio file. So so I mean in in what is considered an, the educated speech, the high upper class speech. So I still come with that power. And and if I start saying research and start asking questions, that power is solidified. For you going to engage with the community, you have to be very well aware of what every part of your existence there means to them, affects them, means for their livelihood. What do they expect from you? What do they and, and know exactly what are you there to offer them? And know that they owe you shit. Sorry, they owe you nothing. A field owes you nothing. They owe you, they don't owe answering your question. They don't owe you completing your PhD. You are not helping them with something. We are going to write for our academic field to read it to, read it to each other. It's not going to go back to them. None, none, nobody in my village reads English. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and, and nobody in my village is going to read um, a scientific uh, periodical. So it's, it's settled. Uh, knowing that, and that you're going with a certain level of extraction, and how do we check that? This is 101, before you go in and even see what else you're going to ruin in, in that space. Especially the more vulnerable the community you're working with, the more baggage you bring with you to that community. So this, I would say, the first thing. I will stop here. This is, it's that important. 101, what are you bringing as a researcher? Um, we're, we're going into the next section uh, called Threshold Social Justice and Resistance. Um, and the question is, in Nubia still exists on the utility of the nostalgic space. You talk about subcultures. You mentioned that Nubians have a dual space reality, the space Nubians physically live in and the imagined space. The imagined space is built by stories inherited from the generation who lived in Nubia. Is this imaginary space produced as a coping mechanism and affirmation of, for change or both? I really don't like to think about coping. I really don't like to think about coping. And it's, it's, it's a 
it's so it's it, it hurts my heart thinking about coping first of all because coping work is work we do for the institution not for ourselves so and coping is so much work we do and then ends up it ends up the institution said well look this, these people have coped with the situation we're all good nothing needs to happen no repair no reparation for what has happened um so to me that space is not a space of coping that's a space of production so this to me lies under this definition of disembodied territories. My premise, we're, we're working now on a, on a project under that title, by the way, that has more than 50 African um, uh, scholar and artist and, and uh, researcher uh, speak, thinking about spaces and spatiality from an African, from a, from a Black point of view. Because I believe in the following, that a that humans will create territories, whether they can find the materiality to impose it upon or not. So if we are, if we say there is the Nubia the land, that's materiality, but there is also Nubia the territory, which is the one that we we create as a peoplehood. So as a peoplehood, we territorialize the space into Nubian land. If the land is taken, that does not mean the, land, the territory is not there. It's just disembodied. So the imagined space becomes that. The imagined space becomes a, a space of production. And it's, it doesn't look like the old land. You just keep producing and reimagining. It's just a place, it's a place of design. We just keep designing collectively and then telling that story. Well, our land, we, in our land, we used to, to open our doors and see the river and then go to the river. Well, that's a design principle. That's programming. And I'm going to, to build a house. I would like to see my river and I would like to go swimming. This is this is a, a architectural design from where I stand, uh, even so. Um, so yeah, to, so to me, the, the the territory is a space of production, and it's going to keep producing, and it's going to keep producing in affected by all the political and and the um, social changes that Nubians are going to go through until Nubians decide they don't want to produce their space anymore, which I don't see in the near future. We have not. I was born in the eighties. And my people were displaced in the 60s, and I, I identify as displaced. So I am displaced from where I have never been. Um, and that's be because I exist in that territory. I'm displaced from the land, but I'm still Nubian. Thank you. Um, talking about the same dual space, um, so the space Nubian physical we live in and the imagined space between the spaces uh, exists a contestation uh, that keeps Nubians displaced, what you talked about. So reflecting on these dual space realities, I start to see this suspended space the Nubians created from this their, themselves in the new settlements. So do you think maintaining this suspended state of living in both and neither reality establishes this sense of temporariness as an intentional form of resistance to the Egyptian governmental project? Yes. Yes, I do. Because when you think about the suspended space, which is the here, the space of displacement, it's the only land that is available for you, for us as Nubians, but we don't have the right to own it. So we are displaced into a, one of the biggest um, housing projects for um, one of the biggest development induced displacement and resettlement projects in the 20th century. The state built 17,000 units, okay? But we don't get to own them. You don't, you don't own that space. You just get settled in it. 
and they put you in that space, but this is the only space that is Nubian. So this is the only space that you don't have to fight somebody else for cultural performance. Because some, this is something else they do. We, we, Nubians have been displaced in different, into different realms before. This is not our first displacement as you probably saw in, in, my, so in my papers. And also during that displacement, some Nubians were displaced to the North among other farmers. So what they do usually, what states do is that they pit you against each other. It's just, they just put you in the same space and you have to fight over cultural performance. For In that culture, women can dance. In that culture, women can't dance. And then in this culture is fighting over her, this, this, and in this culture, they just pit you against each other. But in displacement, it was it was the desert, and it was a desert that my foremothers and fathers produced into that home, and always called it Tahgir. So it's a, it's a, this is all against that whole narrative around coping too. Um, uh, the fact that um, the fact that we still call our uh, where we live the place of displacement. What sixty years now? Seventy years? The nineteen sixty? Oh yeah, sixty two started the displacement. Yeah, 60 years by now, and we still call it the place of displacement. We will not forget. We it's it's so it has permeated every aspect of the culture that when you go to a swan to city center and you would like to take a taxi to the place of displacement, you literally say that I would like to go to the place of displacement. And they would tell you which village, and then you would take they would take you there. It's it's that the the rejection of it being Nubia is so it's is still there we're not gonna forget but we still make use of that materiality it's such a dire materiality or dire resources or dire situation uh, scarce resources and we make use of that to keep a bit of the territory and then we every feast after ramadan nubians from cairo in egypt take the famous nubian train so Thousands of Nubians, tens of tens of thousands of Nubians rent Egyptian trains. So the, the, it's the Egyptian um, railway allows us to rent these trains, and every train card would have the name of the village on it. And then we would travel all together to go to our villages, which is the displacement villages, for a feast. Because this is the only this is the only centralized materiality in which we can exist together during you know uh, these times. And it's a festive way. And I see the villages carrying carrying their own names, but also the train carrying the village name. That's that's a reproduced special, you know, this the, the reproduced speciality. We're not gonna forget. I know that coastal is underwater, but coastal still exists. It exists in, in, in the displacement village, and my grandmother refuses to leave it. And also for those who live in Cairo and Alexandria are going to take a train, they're going to put a banner and say coastal, because this this car is full of people from that that special village. It's, specific village if you know what i mean so yeah the, the short answer to your question is yes you already touched about on this on like how nubians refused to call the house like the housing project as the new nubia and instead they called it the place of displacement yeah. which you already also mentioned it's like a way to uh, refuse or resist um replacing the lost land nubia so can you talk a bit more about the role of language as a way of resistance and how the name of the space influences how Nubians inhabit the space. Notice that Tajir is in Arabic, not Nubian. So yeah. the word is intended not to tell Nubian speakers that this is a place of displacement. The word is intended to tell everybody in the country who speaks Arabic, which is the entire country, that this is a place of displacement. 
because we could have found a Nubian name for it. It's a, we have we have access to both languages. So language here is such an important vehicle or um, let's call it a tool. It's an important tool to, to repurpose and, and appropriate um, within these instances of subtle resistance. Because Nubians know they cannot really go and push and, and, and they don't have the, the militant power to do something like this. But you find that these are all kind of notions of uh, resistance that takes you years upon years upon years and creates create generation after generation that carries that same, um, that same stance. Uh, so on the other side, the Nubian language itself was another site of resistance because the space that exists in the Nubian language is not the same space that exists in Arabic or in English. In Nubian, we have several articles to ask the question where. So there are articles to ask for things that exist geographically. There are articles to, to ask for things that are close to you. There are articles to think to ask about things that don't exist in materiality. So something can can you can say where is where is the generosity in this world? So where is the generosity in this world? There is a, a cognition of spatiality that puts a certain article for you to to describe something that that exists as in spatiality but not in materiality. And there are also the two major ones that are always in use in in my dialect in Nubian is the difference between things that are attainable and things that are not attainable. And this has to do so much with displacement, that creation of that other space. Because then there is a space that you cannot, that spa spaces are places that you can, spaces are this placement in which you can exist and attain, if you took a train of light, it's something that is, and there is a place that exists but is not attainable to you. And it can be something as little as uh, you're looking for a pencil that you lost years ago and you will never get back. And then, you know, nostalgically would say, ah, where is that pencil of mine? And you know, you're not going to attain it. You're not going to hold it in your hand again. But it also is always used when speaking about the old land and speaking about Nubian in, in, in Nubian. So in, in language hides a construction of spatiality, you know? Language as a language, language with its stories are epistemic vehicles, uh, in which in which we we hide also as thankfully nobody really cared to learn Nubian uh, in Egypt. It's it's very interesting that the uh, indigenous people would be living in these spaces. Uh, uh, scholars would an Egyptian scholar would go across the world and, and learn Cantonese to study, or would go. And learn German to study, but then they work with Nubians and never learn Nubian. So, so, and that's for us lucky because then the language is not surveilled because because nobody really understands it. But it, it's used uh, uh, sometimes. It, there are stories about its usage in war as a um, as a code. Uh, there are all these stories about the Nubian language, but really really it still becomes hide, uh, hidden. Uh, so yeah, so to come to this question of, of knowledge or to conclude this question of knowledge, uh, no, sorry, language, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, this, it's this epistemic vehicle um, in Nubian to, to, to actually make and define Nubian space. And it's also used in Arabic 
as a form of resistance. There are, it's very interesting what words we choose to use in Arabic and what words we choose to use in Nubian. Um, and it has to do also with the early days of displacement where there were lots of state agents around you. So there are words you always use in Nubian and things that you always say in Nubian and things that you, you always say in Arabic and not to forget that I'm only the third generation of Arabic speakers in my family. My great grandmother did not speak Arabic. There is a, there is this also lots of resistance to preserve the language within the language itself. We don't say that in Arabic. Let me let me just conclude there that yes, language is a site of resistance. So for the following question in your publication, Nubia still exists, you addressed how in 1899, the British colonizers dismantled Nubian land into two territories yeah. by drawing a political border to separate the land into Egypt and Sudan. With the British colonial project of Egypt and Sudan, they enforced physical borders and redrew the maps. In this process, you talk about how Nubian people became divided between Egypt and Sudan and the identification of Nubians became associated with two different nations and it became Egyptian Nubians or, Nub or Sudanese Nubians. So um, like the question is like how this territorial division influenced the Nubian culture collectively. And also in your work, you talk about the design of those settlements and how the Egyptian government followed the British principles of modern planning, discarding the Nubian traditional architecture. In a way, they created a clear division between the public and private, between men and women, and who occupies which space. So in your work, you span from the territorial scale of lost Nubian land, and you zoom in into the Mustaba and how it bridges and blurs the gap between the public and the private to reintroduce uh, the tradition and way of living in the lost land in like Nubia. So I'm interested in asking if through your research on a macro scale, were there spatial practices of resistance to unify Nubians and challenge the British 1899 borders between Nubians in Egypt and Sudan? So the so you have to understand there is a long history before the border and after the border in the relationship between the racialized it's, it's it, to the to to the British Egyptians had white blood in them that's why they made the pyramids but Nubian Nubia is when the Negro started there is no white blood anymore it's just animal land from now on and I am I am not uh, exaggerating this is what is in. Uh, Orientalist and archaeologist literature uh, texts. It's it's there. Um, so there is a very violent divide when it comes where where Egypt ends and where Nubia starts, which is also completely um, manufactured by colonial planning and power. When where black people started and where people who they call them the Mediterranean stock, where there is white blood in them. And that white blood is what how greatness happened, you know, how the pyramids and all the great things happen. It's because we had they had white blood. But Nubians, they had nothing. They are, they are, you know, um uncivilized and inhumane uh, Negroes, just the rest that like the rest of, of, of the African continent for them. And then in 1988, they cut each, they cut the line between Egypt and Sudan, because you know, they they had. It was their hobby, the British colonizer would just, you know, cut a map like a cake and tell you, here, here is your land, here is that land. 
in my Phonambulist piece, I don't know if you got to engage with the Phonambulist piece. It's not an academic journal, but I tell that story uh, in details. That story between two brothers who in 1987, I guess, had uh, people come in and, and start surveyors. So surveyors would come in and measure land because it was it was engineered, engineering work. 1988, it, we were fairly advanced um, in the world. I mean, humanity was fairly advanced. So they they would measure and, and kind of put points. And then in 1899, they would put the line between them and they would mark this as Egypt and this as Sudan. And they would put flags to, to say where this where Egypt starts and no, where flag, Sudan starts. And, and their flags were put on two brothers' houses. So now one brother became Sudanese and one brother became Nubian, Egyptian, and the other brother became, became Nubian Sudanese. Just by just by that act, just somebody would align, put a line on a, on a paper, and you're from a different place than your brother. That's it. Um, yeah. So th when you think about these. Uh, macro scales and how how then the Nubian identity was divided that it meant nothing my grandmother my great-grandmother and I also spoke about this uh, in a podcast for Ar archive of forgetfulness that was uh, curated by um you uh, from um, South Africa from by our colleagues in South Africa an amazing podcast um, series and also a series of projects that that archive um African narratives that are have against forgetfulness. Uh, and I tell that story of my great grandmother who used to wake up and decide that she's going to see her, her brother in Sudan. She's just going to Sudan. It's that's it. And she would take a boat and then she would go to Sudan. And then my mother would tell me when my when her grandmother did that, she thought Sudan is so close. And that was in displacement villages. So when we in nine, in 1899. That the line meant nothing because we could just take a boat. That line does not really cut the river in in, in the middle. This is not really a, a, a biblical um, addition to the built environment. We can still take a boat and see a, and go see our cousin in Half. That, that that makes no difference to us. But then, when the displacement of 1962 to 1964, that's the period in which we, we we were displaced for two years. This this is how big it was. We were being moved for two years acro across several several modes of transportation. This is how complicated it was. This was a, a a vicious move. The the story of the days of movement are would break your heart. But what happened is that you were moved from being so close to Halfa, and you were moved 500 kilometers to the north, but Halfa was moved 600 kilometers to the south. And now between you, there are weeks and weeks of travel. At that time, some people in Halfa stayed. So in Halfa, some, some, some of the, the town stayed. And my grandmother would, would leave in the 60s from the displacement village and travel as if she was in her old village. And it's a three hour boat boat right as it was but it actually took her two weeks to get there and she would take a train and she would take her broom with her in the train to to clean it this is how long the you would take your cleaning supplies with you on the road because you're going to live in a train in a in a steel box for a couple of days in a week or, or, or weeks until you reach that other place and it's not just a train you're going to take a, a car then a boat then a train then another car and you're going to reach there. So it's as if she refuses to rec recognize the border and she refuses to recognize the distance. And she does the work to do the same thing she did just three years ago before displacement, which is just go to see her, go see her brother 
that's now in Sudan. So the 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 construction of distances and the the construction of of kinship got really ruptured um, during these processes. These are very violent processes because also when Nubians were displaced, they were assigned ten percent. In, in Egypt, when Nubians in Egypt were displaced, they were assigned 10% the compensations the Sudanese, Sudanese Nubians were assigned. So economic, like starting ground, starting economic ground, they just created a, a discrepancy between them. And then when Egyptians became part of Egypt, in the caste system of racialization, we are the darkest. So we are the lowest on, on the social mobility uh, pole. But Nubians in Sudan, are lighter in skin than South Sudanese and Central Sudanese and Central African, East Africa. So you, you go Southern Africa and you get, you get darker and darker. So Nubians there would become, would have more possibilities because the, the colonizer divides you and creates, creates a unit and a caste system in that one unit. So I would be, my, my uncle would be a servant somewhere and my other uncle, the Sudanese, my Sudanese uncle is a doctor, literally is a doctor. And my Egyptian uncle is a microbus driver. So if you don't know what that is, if you're not from there, a microbus driver is a very low paying uh, working class job in Egypt. So you find, you find these, you see these systems and you see what they do. And, and it was very important to me to, to kind of link these very personal situations to a larger political and geographic um, and macro incidents that have affected them and, and, and call names and have the audacity to say, you see, I am here, I am, I feel this now because you did that a hundred years, 100, 120 years ago, or 123 years ago, uh, and cut these. And, and don't forget that also the Egyptian state, the post-colonial Egyptian state was complicit because they accepted Egypt with that boundary and left Sudan under the British rule at the time. They were, Abdel Nasser was helping the Sudanese, of course, but the fact that he accepted the line between Egypt and Sudan, and, and he was then afraid that Nubians would go and try to join Sudanese Nubians. That's why we were not displaced near our land. We were displaced 500 kilometers away from our land. It's just a political. So it got so exhausting thinking about smaller, small things and bigger things. And here's a rule of thumb. Here is a rule of thumb that I have learned just studying urban politics and rural politics, a rule of thumb. When you are at the confrontation line, when there is a confrontation line and there is no room for a flow of politics, it's just a confrontation line. There is very poor people living in front of really rich people. It's there. You can't do anything about it. Just move to, move to macro politics. It's a macro political issue. When you are at the, when you are at the ground, you meet a confrontational confrontation point and you don't know what to do with it, ask yourself a question. What are the macro politics that led, led us here? We have this all across Egypt, confrontation lines in, in urbanism, confrontation lines in, in architecture, confrontation lines, confrontation lines that you can't, you have no solution for it. It's just two cultures that should not be, should, two cultures are fighting. You have nothing, you cannot do nothing between them. It's the problem is that they were put, put in this area, in this place by hegemonic macro politics that forces them to, you cannot really go fight the government. You are going to fight the people who are in front of you. You're going to going to fight the people that you see. I don't know if I even answered your question or if I went elsewhere, but I just wanted to touch on this, this relationship between micropolitics and macropolitics. As architects, we see things in flesh 
and forget to go call out the UNESCO and the World Health Organization and, and, and bigger systems and, and labor organization. We forget to go call out these bigger systems that were complicit in, in, in these micro situations and friction points that you can really never solve on a, on a on a micro level. You can never solve homelessness on a micro level. You can go to Don Donald Park and find kids playing, upper middle class kids playing on one side and homeless people on the other side. There is no micro politic, political solution for this. There is only micro political solution for this. Uh, and it's um, important for us as architects before going in as saviors to do the important work. And this is why doing a PhD in architecture is important because it's very hard to do this, this intellectual research when you are practicing. Um, it's very important to go there and say, I am an architect, I went there, you asked me for a solution, my solution is go back to your policies. There is nothing we can do here without you fixing your policies. Nothing but, but painkillers pain, pain or, or we, 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 we become agents of, of injustice as well. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, so powerful. You did answer my question like, um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Uh, in liminal publics, marginal resistance, learning from Nubian spaces and women of the dam, uh, stories and questions of Nubian displacement, you talked about how the government, through its new housing settlements, has forcibly reduced the Nubian women from the bios, which is like public and political life, to the zoe, which is like biological and bare life, by excluding her from the former in a gambling sense. In this regard, the mastaba emerged as a subtle architecture of resistance that defied the binaries and the economies of bios and zoe inside and outside men and women. Can you expand on how such a notion of subtle resistance, marginal tactics and resilience at the micro level were born from the indigeneity of Nubian culture? Here's the thing, the state did not displace women from the public space. State powers forced the built environment on us that had constructed a public versus private uh, uh, duality. We don't have public versus private dualities. So there, the whole um, public private man woman biodeterminism is a Eurocentric intrusion that, had, that has been imposed on us by architecture by the plan that was designed by an architect who had a degree just like you and me, who sat there and drew a house and said, this is going to be the indoor space and this is the outdoor space. The state's going to talk to men in, in the public space and women are going to be in this um, small 100 meter square house. Um, and they, it's not that they, they just excluded her from the public space, they created that duality to exclude her from. They, they created the game and then told her you're not playing just to, to, to start at that. And the resistance becomes the, per, the, the spatial performance that does not recognize that duality to start with. And then you, your resistance, architectural and embodied and material becomes on an epistemic level. It's I don't buy your inside outside. I will have my bed in the street and I will sleep in the street because our bodies belong in the street as well. This is, I have everybody in my family in the summer takes beds out and their neighbors and we sleep in the street in in our villages that's something very normal i grew up with it's the street it, the whole 
people eat their meals in the street. It's it, the whole division between public and private, inside and outside, and then assigning a bioterminism in it to it, and then assigning women to the inside and, and women men to the outside. The, the outside. The whole process is an inter, an ontological imposition that came with architecture, that came with a plan to to, to highlight the importance or the the weight that comes with the lines we just put on paper. That is really great. So along the same lines, in the manwork of the unimportant, the shadow economy of Nubian women in displacement villages, we talked about how the post-colonial state altered the Nubian's economy in the new settlement by funding an agriculture regime exclusively designed for men in the form of training courses and financing for machinery. In this regard, and while men have turned into disciplined or docile bodies that are much easier for the government to control and hence optimize its state-controlled agriculture production, women through their shadow economy have managed to preserve the Nubian economy, culture, and norms. As such, do you think that state's adoption for its modern projects, which are state-built dwellings, planning, training courses, etc., constituted a form of hegemony in the Gramscian sense, which aimed to intervene in or alter the Nubian culture by embracing a new norm vital to managing the risks associated with displacement and unrest? And if so, since it managed to preserve the Nubian culture, would you consider women's shadow economy a form of gender resistance that functions at the cultural, ideological, and sociopolitical levels? In a Gramscian sense, yes. And and I say and I assert that Gramscian sense here as in the fact that hegemonic power has to coerce your your consent, right? So th this is a whole difference between oppression and hegemony in the Gramscian sense. So it, you have been you have been coerced into that system. Just to tell you a backstory, Ahmed. Um, Abdel Nasser had a plan for Nubian villages to be Egypt's food basket. Okay, so we were supposed to be feeding Egypt. We were supposed to be producing wheat. We have we have a, a huge wheat crisis in Egypt. We, have, we, have, we don't have enough bread. We don't produce enough enough bread for us. It's a, one of the hot, most subsidized uh, commodities in Egypt and one of the bigger issues in, in our politics and in, in our evolution to 2011. The first um, request in the, in the famous chant was was Aish, which means bread. It means also living, but it also means bread. Um, so Nubians were supposed to do that. But of course, the project of resettlement was so hasty and the work was not done well. So the land was the salination, it had high salination. It was uh, not suitable for for that. And we ended up, um, we are now farming sugarcane for the state. But here comes the point, the whole planning project with its agricultural and um, dreams, and with all it plan its uh, agricultural planning, and and uh, with all all its housing planning, had to do with creating a new Nubian, not creating a new Nubia. It was about creating a new Nubian that's going to work for the Egyptian state, and for that to happen, they have to be modern, and by modern, means they have to fall in the bounds. And the values that are going to serve the, that future for industrialization of Egypt. Modernism have, has never promised us equity or equality, 
Modernism has it has pro promised prosperity, but it has never promised us equality or equity. So somebody, something has got to give. Uh, and it, it was actually the title was uh, uh, Green Factories. So the Nubian land, the, the propaganda, I have, I have all this propaganda material from that time, the, the advertisement and, and the um, media work by the state and, and all these spreads of green uh, fields uh, and, and with a big title, the Green Factories. That's Nubian land, that's, that's the displacement village. So what kind of work happens in that? What kind of work happens in the factory? You can take this and go read very early workers' struggle and put it on that. And the gender politics that came with that workers' struggle and the gender viol gendered violence that came with that, with that struggle and put it on there. And women, uh, by the way, all the resources went at the beginning went to the um, uh, agricultural land. There was no water in houses. My mother used to go and carry on her head a big bucket of water that was full of pollutants and leeches. And they had to um, filter that through several processes of filtration in, at the house. So there's a lot of burden on household safety and household that women had to, to take on because the resources were not given to the house. and the state has prioritized by funding the agricultural land. So what kind of work comes with that? And also the state looks at the farmer, you know, as a male. The Nubian agriculture that was based on palm trees always had women. In it. There is always a woman part of that, uh, of that process. So when you, when you bring them there and, and, and you bring a different kind of agriculture that relies on the machine, and of course the state only speaks to men, and, and it, it just, Comes with it a lot of different. It comes with it. It comes with a gender a gender con con contract to start with. At the same time, with the with the state focusing resources on agricultural land, the household is deprived, and Nubian women had to bear bear that um, on their shoulders. And that's a, whole, a longer story to to tell you. The the issue for me is that every time I read something, I found how close it is to me and how abhorrent the, the stories that are around it uh, and how painful it was and how how death filled it was the fact that i lost eight uncles and aunties from my mother's side and five from my father's side to displacement it's there this is this is a this is a story uh, that it implicates architecture and the built environment in real bodily violence that is an amazing answer and very okay so um, in the non-work of the unimportant, the shadow economy of Nubian women in displacement villages, you talked about how the Nubian woman through her shadow economy has redefined the use of state-built dwellings by introducing the public sphere into the domestic realm of the Nubian household. Can you expand on the importance of such a role and how it can decolonize architecture theory which is often dominated by the Western architects while excluding or othering those marginalized. First of all, and here's an architect for you. She just changed uses, uses and function. She just changed, changed zoning. When we started asking about women in architecture work, here are women doing political architectural work that is with radical change in the built environment that affects their household economy. So just to, to come back to that, don't, you, you can call her an architect, you, you can't call her an architect. Uh, that, that's, that, that would be a problem of architecture. But 
here here is the here is an undeniable impact just to to build on your question and and remember uh warren's uh kind of refer to warren's question at, at the beginning um but the fact that 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 she relies on the fact that she recognizes that this whole divide between public private is an imposition it's I, there's another space. I I can imagine a space that is otherwise. I I'm I have to tell you every single European friend of mine who goes anywhere in Africa comes back and says it's very confusing. You don't know where it's outside and where it's inside. And it's 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 very hard for them to make sense. And in, first of all, it was very hard for them to imagine going in, not blurring a non-existent duality, non-existent duality between what is inside and what is outside and a subversion of the of the supremacy or the power or the effect of the wall as a border a wall is not a border anymore it, his border is not a border between spaces border is a border between uh between to to politics to a political reals to you just saying that's something and that's something else and a wall is not that anymore uh, so what they did is it just they just did what they always did want did which is not recognize their houses as private spaces of for for biological functions and they needed money because of how economically deprived the city the aswan the nubian displacement villages are and they are really economically deprived and they just started businesses what kind of businesses and within that business they start creating different kinds of financing they start creating different kinds of uh, um, of production, they start reviving Nubian products that nobody else is going to produce. That uh, that also we rely on so so much in our performance of Nubian rituals, the Ramadan abri and the wedding asli and the Sharia for wedding breakfasts. All these things that that we need somebody to make so that we can practice them in in Nubian. We can make that practice. So with that economy, they start re reviving reviving that and with that kind of work that denied the public private division in economic practice with interventions heavy interventions in the house by the way have they they just changed the space they know it's illegal you can't really change because we don't own these houses we can't really change them but you know uh nobody cares to come and look um but they also know that culturally in arabic this is not work because work is only what the state calls work. It's the saddest part for me writing that paper isn't even after all this action in the Hannah Arendt definition of things um, and the difference between labor and work, this is freaking work. Uh, but they still don't count it as work because work, of course, the word is used in Arabic. So are you working? No, no, it's I'm just doing things for my income. It, because she understands that in Arabic, and there is no word for work in Nubin. Everybody did something, but there is no worker. Also, wage work was not was shameful in in Nubian cultures before displacement. No, there is no such thing as wage work at all. We build things together, we farm things together, we uh, fertilize land together. That nobody hires somebody to do anything, and it's a shame for you to be hired to do something. You just go and do something. It's a, it's a very different economic uh, structure. Uh, but now she, 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 the only place for her to understand work uh, as in, as in a lucrative work would be in Arabic. And then because Arabic does not allow her that privilege, 
due to the misogynistic system, it's, it would be say, it would say, no, that's not work because it's not a government position and it's not accepted by the government. And it becomes a shadow, and it, it becomes defined as a shadow economy. And, 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 the, and then I knew that we, we only exist in the shadow. We all, all we put our, our epistemic position can only flourish in the shadows. So I think that leads into our next question in an interesting way. And by the way, hi, Mena, and thanks again for being with us today. Thanks, Steph. Um, it's been so much thought and care into discussing your work. Um, my name is Steph, and I'm a current Master of Architecture student. So the question I'd like to ask is about what constitutes an architect. And it's something that you've already touched on briefly, but in emotional capital and other ontologies of the architect, you introduce a decolonial definition of architect informed by your auto-ethnographic research. You state that the architect is someone who can convert emotional assets, which have been earned over time through invested relationships into other capitals in the process of building and placemaking. And that within this definition of the architect uh, can no longer be an agent of a remote or irrelevant institution. So how does this definition of architect influence your pedagogy when you're working with students and developing courses? Um, well, th this, this definition is, is what, what it means to build in Nubin. And if I want to be an architect who builds, I would like to be that kind of architect who employs emotional resources and uh, garners material resources on the other side in a, in a cyclic economy that recognizes that. So the first thing I do is to try to make, make it very clear um, to my students that um, emotional resources and investment of emo emotional resources in their work is paramount, but also is recognized. And, um, and sometimes it's, it's hard because we, our introduction to the emotional within this, uh, within this Eurocentric field of knowledge in academia is that it is anemic. So it's, it's my, on my shoulders that I show the potency and the material outcome that is possible when we practice architecture emotionally, when we involve our emotional labor. It's also not just, uh, not just anemic, it's anemic and unconscious and feminine and all the things that don't create society. It does not does not create the social, you know, in the the duality between the social and the uh, the inside and the outside, as the private and the public, and the social and the personal, and so on. Um, it's it falls on me then to find these mechanisms through celibi to ha have everybody see that this is potent. We just have to be serious about our emotional involvement. Uh, I know that care is now the buzzword, care labor here, care architecture there, but care is a hard work. Care is heavy, care hurts, it eats at you, it's as hard as hard on your body as carrying bricks and putting them, stacking them up over each other. So what kind, and, and, and as conscious if you, you let it be, and it's as pointed and as effective as you want it to be. Uh, and it falls on me then to present that because, because within the paper, I, I make the story. These are kind of, you know, it, it, moments of epistemic shifts for me. The moment I was to, talking to my auntie and she told me, well, your grandmother built that, that place. And I was like, okay, fantastic. And I, well, all I can think about then is, you know, Roses and Riveter, my grandmother carrying 
things and building things and she had not touched the the whole she, the whole building she was just sitting on her mustaba and giving people uh, orders which is a very that's that would be my great grandmother and her daughter may they, may they both uh, rest in power and that's very uh, in line with how I remember them just sitting somewhere somewhere and giving us all uh, you know pointers that's really how they functioned and then eventually people would um, credit them for building so that the fact that who we credit on with building is our collective choice so we choose to credit the person who just saw some sat somewhere and drew something and had their associates built everything else and we would say well that's by Zaha Hadid architects it's our choice to credit her for that and consider it as, consider it as genius within that within my community they made a choice to credit her emotional work and credit credit it as building and credit it, it as genius she had created this building out of nothing she did not have a lot of money she brought things together brought people together brought resources together and made that community building happen i hope i answered your question thank you so like the next part is about agency and gender so women gender and feminism are critical themes and play a key role in your work in nubia still exists on the authority of, of the nostalgic space liminal publics marginal resistance learning from nubian spaces and emotional capital and other ontologies of the architect you expanded on the history and traditions of the nubian woman not not as an oppressed non-asian but rather as a storyteller a manager of the oikos of the household a participant in the police like the city and political life and a placemaker with the latter taking place through emotional practice can you talk about how an Afro-feminist or Nubian feminist perspective can challenge Western epistemes and promote a new inclusive understanding of the architect and collective authorship? Did I use police in my, did I use the Greek terms in my paper? No, like, like you were talking, like, you, you, I think you did not use like police, like the Greek terms, yeah. Okay, because I would, uh, I would, I have, I would have at some moment in my life would never do that now. Because first of all, it's not the house versus the city. It's not the. You see, we can only understand them in the Greek. It's the only relational aspect is the Greek duality that we were giving at first year architecture uh, history class, right? The difference between the city and the household. This duality is ontologically inapplicable to us. It does not exist. We don't have a, a city versus the household thing. This is that we have a house as the point of origin. So how we understand how our life becomes, how the, our story of origin is the house. So the house is a point of origin and then you grow and you go other places and other households and stories of origin and series of stories of origin. And then you have a naga and then another one forms and now you have a village. And now you have 563 Nagas and villages within the Egyptian bounds, and then I don't know how many in, in the Sudanese bounds and uh, Sudanese uh, inside the Sudanese borders. And you have this is how how you, you exist. And the the household as a story of origin is um, is an ontology you find in other African positions. So we cannot understand African contexts using. Western Greek 
dualities uh, and definitions of space. So you can you cannot make these comparisons. I used to make them. I used to make them. Then I then I understood it hasn't. They have nothing to do with each other. This is two different ways of of, of world making. This has, to do this, you need a pluriversal lens, and a pluriversal lens with a feminist agenda makes you question the whole idea of gender to start with. If the city and the house, if the public is man and the, the private is woman, and if she's the reproduction and he's production, and you go all the way until Marxist and leftist theory, and you still have that duality coming your way, um, then what happened? Then, then how can I then understand? And, and, femi and feminist theory really relies on, on all that history and lineage, the Western feminist theory. Uh, I cannot really use that when I speak about Nubian woman, because that woman that they speak about is not the same woman uh, in, 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 in a Nubian context. So the whole notion of gender has to be dismantled. Um, first of all, because biodeterminism, again, is imposed on us. The fact that your, your um, livelihood and your destiny and your value is determined by your biological status is is enforced on us. Uh, there are it's we live in a different value system. Um, that's because we, even though we practice some of them now, we have to be very we practice the the public private separation now. We have to understand that this also came with colonization, and came with architecture, um, and that's why I I think the biggest victim of colonial and state violence in Nubia is the Nubian house. Not even the Nubian woman, it's a Nubian house. It has been evacuated of its power. It has been pushed to the corner and, and, and reduced in, in size. It has been really re diluted in its, uh, in its role and its ability to serve the Nubian community as it used to be. Um, and it was and it was forced to immaterially to have to give up a lot of the functions that it used to do. So that houses, Nubian houses were, were a thousand meters square. Why would you need a house that is a thousand meters square? Because this is not a house. This is your house, your courtroom, your uh, crop um, separating uh, space. This is your playground. This is where you sleep if it's too hot in, inside. This is also your environmental control um, uh, pocket because you know when you have a, a courtyard, it, it holds air inside and, and takes it in, into your house. So it's, uh, it does so many things in that size. And then when the state said, well, a thousand meters square is too much, let's give you a hundred meters square. You get all that out of you. It's, 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 we say all these just as an injustice things and we forget to put a number on them. We forget to put, a surface area on them. We forget to put uh, materiality on them and prices and a cost of, of, of income and cost over generations and, and, uh, and earn, earning uh, abilities that were, uh, that were diminished by displacement, right? Uh, so I, I, see, I see that the biggest victim is the architecture of Nubian House uh, coming out of this. And, and then that's, a, that's a, an Afro-feminist environmental ground to stand on. This, because Afro-feminist uh, literature will always take you to the ground. So, uh, or you fool me if you've read my, uh, I'm sure one of them, I'm sure I'm using way for me everywhere, um, of in one, what gender is motherhood? 
tells you we mother it's the, the womanhood does not come with a gender gender is something that you get it's, it's not even we don't have that performance of gender because see go back to the, the question of identity identity is something that is imposed on you for you to be counted and surveilled you're told you're a man i'm told i'm a woman right i'm not a woman in in my village they always call me that girl you know why? Because I don't live in the village and I don't take care of people. My mother, they love her. She's a woman because she takes care of people. If they need something, they call her. So womanhood is earned. It's not a gender that is given to you to be counted and identified. And that earning happens in the household. And her womanhood earning abilities got diminished by the diminishment of the household. And that po the power also that comes with the womanhood that she used to earn as a matriarch, Nubian matriarch, got diminished with that household. Thank you. Um, yeah, I could continue this. Uh, obviously, we're mining a little bit more into the issues. Um, what what would be the driver for the Tajir New Nubia urban and residential design? Was a redefinition and reduction of women's sphere intentional? Was it political, religious, or was it part of the modern industrialization movement? What is the difference between them then? What is the difference between intentional subjugation of women and industrial industrial modernism? What is the difference between them? If if the 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 first is the wrong that happens to you, and the second is a process that comes with the wrong that happens to you, you know what I mean? So it's a again modernism never promised us justice it only promised prosperity for some it did not specify but it never promised us justice um so going into the next section uh obviously this is getting closer to uh to you um architect versus researcher versus worldview uh the question is do you find it challenging when the roles of being an architect and a researcher collide how has being a practicing architect, architect affected your research? I don't find it challenging because I decided already what kind of architect I want to be. And that one recognizes research as architecture work. Because let's let's be honest, it's a, it's a disgrace that our research is not architecture work. It's a disgrace that we were not told that we need to do our research going into a project, even if we are junior architects asked to do one task. We are. We also need to be aware if we are breaking any of our moral grounds. We need to know that if I'm going to go there and do this minor job, am I complicit in, in a project that works against my political interest, right? Yes, we are trained to go do that. You are required to do these HVAC plans. And then I'll, maybe you will discover later that they are for a prison. But I don't want to work for prisons. I do not want my labor to go in in the pool of labor that's going to create prisons. But I did not do my research. I'm, I was not, I was not knowing knowing and doing research was not embedded in me as a part of my task as an architect. So I think it's a shame if it's not. Uh, I am in a great loss, and I have decided kind of architect I want to be. So it's never a challenge. It's actually I cannot really function as an architect without very strong research um, and and thorough and sincere and emotionally involved inquiry that precedes that. In uh, Nubia still exists on the utility of the nostalgic space 
you referenced Donna Haraway's zero-way technology. In that respect, you zero-weighted yourself on the Nubian side of the story and challenged the common assumption that political interest orchestrates scientific knowledge. Can you talk about your position and how you managed any tensions that might have arisen during your research? Tensions, but this is the good thing about a PhD. You're not commissioned by anybody. You do whatever you want, right? This is the last time you're going to do this in your whole life, I'm telling you, ever. That you're going to do all, because from now on, you're going, it's your project, it's this big of a project. If you do a project this size, again, it's going to be funded and it's going to be for policy and, or for, you know, and you're going to have funders sitting with you to see the, the, where you are and if you're meeting where you're going. So if you're going to do something this big with this intensity full time again in your life, you're never going to have this kind of freedom. It's just by the, the bounds of economics, of academic economics that we have. So I had all this freedom and I was able to mess around and mess things around and, and do things and throw them away and, and get funded for field work and then not use that work, you know, that product of that field work, but, but learn something very valuable that this is not how field work should be done. Um, so the tensions, the tensions would be, I would say the tensions, if I would say tensions would be the good things that happened that bit me against myself. The things that just put me against myself, two things in me are fighting each other. And then I have to make a decision which one of them is there. And, and to quote Donna Haraway, if you're, you, you have to stand somewhere from the story, right? If you're not standing somewhere from the story, you're not standing anywhere from that story. You always have a position from a story. You're always sitting some, standing in, in one position from, the, from a certain story. Otherwise, you're not standing from anywhere from that story. You're not related to it. Um, so to me, it was, it was thinking about that, the, the moments, the frictions that just put me against myself, parts of me against myself. And then I get to choose which direction I want to go to. And I, I, um, I think it was a very healthy exercise just to know where I want to go with life even as, as a researcher, where do, what, what do I want? What compromises am I willing to make and, and so on. Thank you. Uh, hi, Mena. Uh, I'm Yu Zhen. I'm the second year PhD student. And uh, my, my question is related about uh, uh, the Absimba temple, uh, even that you are not mentioned in your, in your articles. So, but I am very curious about that. Uh, how do you think about the relationship between the Absimba temple and the Nubian village? The relocation of the Absimba uh, was widely praised by the international community while the forces displacement of the Nubian village seems to have uh, received little international attention. The yeah. relationship between the heritage and its uh, closest community is often overlooked in the process of the heritage conservation. So how do you understand such a heritage conservation action? Okay, I think I prefaced but I think I, I said before the, where we stand as Nubians from the UNESCO. And I say this, yeah, my family is my family is very active. My, my late father today is, uh, is his um, annual memoriam um, fourth year 
And in 2012, he had a big party for UNESCO people, agents, and, and especially William Adams, William Adams, this uh, um, archaeologist who wrote a book this thick, uh, titled Nubia Corridor to Africa. And this basically a congratulations because they saved Nubian, Nubian monuments. First of all, they did not save Nubian monuments. They were thinking of it as Egyptian monuments. Because no, again, it's this, the white people and the white blood that is in some of those people is what built all this kind of greatness. Because the Simple Temple is an engineering marvel. It's not just the, the cutting in stone, the, 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 the temple itself. It's the fact that the light's going to go and touch the king's face in the inner room of the temple two times every year. Every it's it's an engineering marvel, and people just go to Egypt at the time to go see the it's this dark room at the inside of the temple, and then in this the sun is going to come and touch that face that once one time. It's this is a lot of genius, and I am. This is at the end, so I'm a bit too tired to be politically correct. I'm going to be a bit too honest and frank about it. There are lots of um, uh, politics of racialization that comes with archaeology. Uh, they never looked at Nubians, and I thought these are the rightful owners or the rightful inheritance of this heritage. Uh, the the um, temple of Abu Simbel sits above above the village of Abu Simbel. You never see the village. See, you, you choose what you see. You, you choose where the camera is going to get. The, you you choose to not see people. You make people invisible. So the UNESCO didn't elected not to see people. And then when the head of the UNESCO was asked at that time, um, what about with people? He said the UNESCO is inter interested in stones, not people. And this is uh, at that time they were saving temples and taking them to to, to Spain and and and, and the US. It's not they were also stealing our heritage and putting it in, in European and American cities. It's not just a it's it's not just a, a campaign. They were also taking souvenirs with them. Uh, but but the fact that the the all the amount of money, the amount of money that was put in the salvaging of this temple versus the little investment, care, and minding of the death that Nubians had to, to uh, endure. And their displacement shows you the value systems of these institutions and these organizations at their at their um, at their core. Even though now there are all these programs for uh, intangible heritage and so on, um, I still think there is also a colonial project in that when you decide to care for stone and not people. And still, our Egypt, Egyptology and archaeology in Nubia is is highly violenced and does not recognize Nubia. And also because archaeologists live in necropolitics, they cannot really impose a story over history when people are still alive. So they still they need to pretend that you're dead. So this is this is a new position for that. And we speak about the new the the Abu Simbel temple that sits, sits over the Abu Simbel village over the Abu Simbel village, which is known as Farreg in Nubian, on the other side from Postol, my ancestral village. So my grandmother on the other side from the river sees the Abu Simbel temple. This is how everyday life this is this was for us. This is these are elements that were part of our built environment. We're not they're not separated. But in international consciousness, it was intentionally using visual tools, photography, uh, pu public relations, media, the separation between what happened to Nubian, what happened to Nubian, what happened to the 
to Nubians and what happened to monuments, separating Nubians from their monuments and pretending that they are saving Nubia. It's, it was a save Nubia campaign. It was not saving, it, 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 they, people were thinking that they're saving Nubia, forgetting that Nubia has people too. Because again, there is an interest for in heritage studies, especially the Kosovo archaeology and Egyptology, to deal in necropolitics. They need us to be dead for them to be able to tell our story without us interrupting them. Thank you so much. You know, socially dead. I, I understand that these 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 perceptions might be a bit too radical. The UNESCO is very oh. important. They're doing good work and blah blah blah. No, it's I'm not just radical. That's it. I think that now that uh, the heritage research, exactly, uh, especially the critical heritage research, are concerning about that, and also some change about that directions to concerning about the local community relationship with the, with the heritage site and also who has the responsibility and who has the right to the heritage site. Thank you. Thank and you. It, thank you for, 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 for prefacing with this. I was thinking I'm just saying something supercharged and, and <laughs> irrelevant. Like it, 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 it's very foreign to what you're saying. So thank you for, for bringing in a critical heritage, heritage studies into this. Because what I'm trying to give you is an encounter of Nubians. Well, some Nubians will tell you it's amazing they saved our, of course, there is this narrative, but if you look at it as a system, at the same time, you, your life is not important, you're losing five and eight children in displacement. We have, we had at some times, there, there were archaeologists who wanted to save, to save monuments that asked for an order to displace villages early. So they displaced villages early so that they can save monuments. Imagine that. The, the state, the police and the army will displace you early so that archaeologists can save your heritage. Not save it, of course, steal it and take it into um, a European museum. But this was the situation. This is this happened. OK. Um... Because uh, the, the final question, uh, you kind of re related to that earlier, uh, which is uh, research is a form of practice. Um, I guess what, a, what the, the intent of the question that I was going to ask is, in closing, it's supposed to be a light one, but uh, <laughs> do you continue um, the actual practice of uh, drawings and, and design? And do you think that if, if, if yes, or if not, do you think you're gonna do that in the future and, and being able to apply the research you have actually uh, conducted? Yes. Yes, we're architects, right? I'm also right. a daughter of a contractor. So it's like, you have to make things to, <laughs> so you always feel like you have to make things to be validated, but that's of course not true. But uh, I am very interested in, in design build and I hide inside academia to do the things that the market's not going to allow me to do. And I hide um, within the university, especially progressive universities that in, in, in progressive contexts that give me the freedom to do su such thing and try to implement uh, design build work. Because it's also very important that we don't speak in the cloud. We, we so what does that mean for my grandmother and that that crack in the wall of her house. Every everything for me goes back to that point. Um, uh, so I'm I'm very invested in in, in taking things uh, into materiality. 
I also always take a, try to take a critical distance from our um, interventionist tendencies in architecture. I, I guess I would like to add, I would love to see some of your work. <laughs> I will send you a website. Thank you. <laughs> I just want to thank you, Mena, for the really open answers. You brought so much to the interview and really the generous insight uh, in your work. Uh, I think, you know, you give us a lot to think about and, you know, so many points of departure, I think, for the research of the students. Uh, I enjoyed every part of your answers. And, uh, you know, like I was thinking about what you said, um, you know, about uh, out of ethnography and how relevant it is, I guess, to any kinds of research, you know, because there is a lot of, um, I guess, you know, in Western types of epistemological frameworks, you know, the idea that research is objective and often using the impersonal uh, form of writing as if one could actually write themselves out of the research. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, if you have any thoughts on that in terms of, I guess, the relevance of this methodology in our context. It's I think it's so important, especially as a defense mechanism, as resistance to um, um, the ego that has been embedded in the field uh, of architecture. The fact that you're an, an architect comes with a post of ego and comes with a certain cachet in it uh, that we often we seldom take a critical distance from. And having reflexive autoethnographic exercises, even if it's not methodologies and, and elaborate research, but reflexive autoethnographic um, exercises. While we do our work, would be much needed decolonial and resistant work. Thank you very much, Manna. I also want to take an opportunity to thank the PhD students and MS students for putting together the agenda for your interview. Thank you again very much. And thank you. I am really humbled and honored that you went in and, and did all the, this reading uh, in my work. Uh, thank you so much for your work and your effort and your very kind invitation. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Mena. Thank you so much, Federica. Like, it was really like great opportunity to be engaged and working with you.